Good morning. It is, uh, it is really good to see all of you here. I am so, so glad. My name is Jeff. I'm the pastor of worship and adult ministries here at Forestbrook. Uh, and it's my privilege today to talk to you um, about worship, the, this rhythm and tradition uh, that we have of worship. Uh, as Lindsay mentioned earlier, we're working this summer through a series called The Roots, this idea of the things that we do that connect us to our source, that cause us to grow, that cause us to bear the kinds of fruit that we're supposed to as the people of God. Uh, and over the first two weeks, Jim Chen took us through uh, prayer uh, and listening. And what I was struck by is that it doesn't just happen that we connect with God just because we pray or just because we listen. It's a matter of the heart. It's about more than the motions that we go through. It's about the experience of the presence of God. As we root ourselves in who he is and how much he loves us and how we begin to move in response to his voice. And so here we are uh, today talking about worship. Uh, and I'm going to make a disclaimer right now. Half an hour, probably not enough to cover this topic, as it's going to be most of eternity for us. Okay? Uh, but we're going to talk today through some of the facets that I think are really important for us to understand and be on the same page about, and also to celebrate uh, in terms of what we do as a community. So before I kind of dive in too closely or fully um, on this topic, let's make sure we're on the same page. Uh, if you're on Instagram and follow the church, you may have got the prompt of the question, what comes to your mind when you hear the word worship? You only get one word, okay? So no theological essays back to me coming here. Marcus, I'm looking at you, okay? But when you hear the word worship, give me the first word that comes to mind. Joy, praise, singing, glory, adoration, love. I heard something over here sounded like Elizabeth, so I'm excited. Presence. Anything else? Bet that's two words, cheater. Bended knees, I'll, I'll take it. What was that? Happiness. Okay. I need a minute. <laughs> Thank you, Travis. That was awesome. So these are our words, right? But when we look at what the Bible says worship is, it encompasses all of these things. And I realize you have a limit of one word. But we're going to look at what the Bible says and defines worship as. There are lots of examples throughout the Bible of what worship should be, what it looks like, and what it shouldn't be, what it shouldn't look like. There's a lot of descriptions of worship, but there's only one definition of worship that says this is what worship is. And it's in Romans 12, 1. It's on the screen behind me. Can you guys read it with me? Let's read. Therefore, I urge you, Sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. And another way true and proper gets translated is this is your spiritual act of worship. In view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. So looking at this definition, worship starts with an experience. It starts with an understanding or a discovery of the person, the presence, and the work of God. And out of that, we respond to it. Here's what I want you to notice. In view of God's mercy, in view of God's sacrifice, offer your body as a living sacrifice. We're supposed to respond in the way we have understood who God is and what he has done. He was a sacrifice for us. We now offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. Our response, our worship, is intended to look like who God is and what he does. 
The context of our response is that of God's mercy. We need to bring God the kind of response, the kind of life that reflects the things that he loves, the things that we know bring him joy, and not just the things that we like or that we find comfortable. One of the descriptions of, uh, of an experience of worship that I want us to look at together is in Isaiah uh, chapter 6. Uh, the worship team earlier read this passage, um, and we're going to read through it in just a second, but I want to give you a little bit of context. You can see it starts with, in the year that King Uzziah died. So this is Isaiah 6. And in the first five chapters, if you read through Isaiah, just even at a glance, you get this really clear sense that the culture of worship, the practice of worship in Israel is broken. It no longer looks like what God wanted them to do and how he wanted them to do it. There was something wrong, and Isaiah was speaking against it. Now, King Uzziah was generally a good king for Israel. He brought prosperity. He helped them in terms of technology and militarily. There was lots of really good things that went on until the day that he went to the temple and said, not only am I king, I'm going to take on some of the priestly duties, and I'm going to light some incense. I'm going to take this on. And the priests said, that's not your job. That's not what we're supposed to do. That's disobedience. And he got leprosy because of that. And so the worship culture was broken. This, this pinnacle of hope, this beacon that the whole nation looked to, was struck down gradually and over time. But he ended up with leprosy because of this. And it's in this context, I think, it's important to have a look. So let's read this through together. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. I'm going to suggest to you that this is Romans 12.1 enacted. It starts with an experience of the glory and the grandeur of God. Isaiah sees the Lord for who he is. It helps that he's got winged creatures singing, right? And the glory fills the temple and there's smoke at the sound of their song. It's an overwhelming experience of the glory of God. And he sees who he is in light of who God is and says, I'm ruined. I'm from an unclean people, king with leprosy who has just died. I have unclean lips. I'm from a people of unclean lips, and I have just seen the King, the Lord Almighty. And that's not the end of the story. God intervenes. God works. He brings, via the seraphim, the coal to Isaiah's mouth, and he purifies the very thing 
that Isaiah has just said is unclean. He's made clean. And God says, I have atoned for your sin. And then the Lord says, well, who is going to go for me? Who am I going to send? And Isaiah says, here am I. He has just had his lips cleansed. Do you know what he is going to go and do? He is going to go proclaim the message of Yahweh to the people. He's going to point them and us to Jesus by his words for the rest of his life. He responds in the way God moved in his life. He had the experience of having his lips cleansed, so he went and spoke the the word of God. We respond out of what we have come to understand. Worship is what God wants from us. Everything we do in our lives that is done as a response to who he is, to his work in us, is worship. We are to live lives that demonstrate and reflect his work in us, the work of making us holy, of making us more like him. We need lives that demonstrate holiness, lives that demonstrate reconciliation, lives that demonstrate joy, lives that show how we're different because of who he is and what he has done. It's a good day when we get to experience the presence of God really easily, when we're in that place, in that moment where we can have that kind of vision of God where he just overwhelms us with something about how great he is, how much he loves us, or just a truth in, in our circumstances that's amazing and wonderful. Those are good days. Those are my less common days when the days I have to be intentional about it. It would be really nice to wake up every day and experience that vision that Isaiah had. Right? Great. There's the glory of the Lord in the temple. Wonderful. He's atoned me. Great. I get to move on now. It would be great if that was my reality. It's not. I'm assuming I'm not that alone in it. What is it that we can do, though, to be intentional? What are the ways that you go about striving or looking to experience the presence of God? That's an actual question that I would love an answer on. What are the things that you do in the rhythm of your life to intentionally seek out the presence of God? Pray. Yeah. Pray every morning. Read the Word. Yeah. Absolutely. Listen to praise and worship music. Be present. Thank you. What do you mean by that? Keep your eyes open for what God is doing around you. Mm -hmm. Sing. Come to church. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Mm -hmm. Conscious appreciation, yeah. I had gratitude checked down as something that's really important for me because if I'm not taking stock of what I'm thankful for, I'm likely to miss what God's been doing. Nature walk. Work to God's glory. Tell me more, Brian. Save something for your sermon next week. Little, little trailer. But um, what do you mean, work for God's glory? Hmm. Yeah. So in, I'm going to say this just so the recording has it, but meeting with students and, and teaching lectures that you do, that's a way that you can actually bring the presence of God into your classes wherever you go. Taking what he's equipped you for 
and made you passionate about allows you to bring that joy, that passion, that presence of God out to them. Too much paraphrasing? Did I put words in your mouth? Okay. Thank you. Gardening. So this is just a little aside, nowhere near my notes, but I did landscaping for a summer for a guy at the church that I grew up at, and he told me in sort of the second or third week, he said, there's something really powerful about gardening, because that's where God put us at the beginning. It's important to get your hands in the dirt. Maybe there's some things that we need to do that are really out of the ordinary that you might not associate are really spiritual practices that can actually help ground you and root you and help you experience the presence of God as you get something of who he is through what you're doing. Yeah. Spend more time with people who love the Lord. That can, that can be helpful. You know what? Community and relationships are absolutely important in this. Right? I'm going to suggest to you that to experience the presence of God requires a level of intentionality that's really hard to accomplish on your own. Right? Serve others. Yep. There's, we have all kinds of blind spots because we love ourselves. Right? So when we're able to serve others or when we're in community and relationships with others, it allows us to see different perspectives on where we are and, and what we're thinking about, what we're going through, what we prioritize and love. Small acts of kindness with great love. Can you give me an example? Mike Wilson. Just smile at somebody. Yeah. Yeah. That's huge. Smiling at somebody. Just be, like, showing them that joy in that life and their value that you would take the time and energy to do that. Yeah. It creeps people out sometimes. Right? But I think it's a really good thing as well. Risk being creepy, I think, perhaps, is one of our lessons here. Um, I think it's really important to not get blinded by the everyday, right? To not get blinded by the familiarity of the rhythms and routines that we get into. Let me use communion as an example. We come to the table and we have really clean cut pieces of bread or individually wrapped, foil wrapped, gluten-free pieces of bread, which are available at the back if you need them. And we have these single serving kind of shots of juice in the tray as they come around. Those objects in and of themselves, we know because we recognize, yeah, okay, body of Christ, blood of Jesus. Really easy to go, okay, got it, and pass it along without really thinking about what this means. But as we come to the table, we're telling a story. We're enacting the story of Jesus' love, his service to the world, his sacrifice, his strength and majesty, his salvation, his perseverance. As we take it, we say that we are a people of unclean lips. We are a people of impure thoughts, with selfish hearts who are prone to wander, who have been saved and who are being saved by the work of Christ. And as we take it, what we're saying as we tell that story is that we want to live in a way that emulates that love and in a way that emulates his life in response to what he has done for us. We're going to share communion now. And I'm going to pray. And after the bread and the cup come by, we're going to take the offering. Because we want to have this response, this capacity to respond to him. I'm going to pray for all three things now, but I'm going to invite the ushers forward uh, as we move into that time. Our Father, I thank you that you have made yourself known to us and that you continue to make yourself known to us. Father, I ask that you would open our eyes. God, I ask that you would open our ears, that you would renew our minds, that you would soften our hearts, that you would allow us uh, in our time together today to experience you.
God, we ask that you would show us your glory in as much as we can bear. God, we pray that you would give us a deeper and better and truer understanding of who you are, what you've done, and how much you love us so that we would live lives of grateful response, that we would go into those places that you have called us, that our lives would be worshipped, that we wouldn't confine our worship to this specific act that we're doing now or this specific hour of this week. Father, you love us and you are good. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his life. We thank you for his work. We thank you for what it continues to do in us. God, I ask that you would compel us to live differently because of what we do here today. As we take the bread, as we take the cup, as we offer what we have to you. Father, we receive and we give. We bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. So the definition that we talked about of what worship is doesn't say anything about Sunday mornings. It talks about this life response. So how did we end up making the association and connection between worship as a thing that we do on Sundays when we come together? That's not an actual question. We're going to talk about that. Um, well, one of the reasons why we're supposed to do this is because our lives are supposed to follow the example of Jesus, right? And in Jesus, in the rhythm of his life, how many of the stories can you think of that started with Jesus went to the synagogue, right? Or Jesus was at the temple. The practice of worship and worship together with people was a really important facet of Jesus' ministry. He didn't abandon those places. He still went there, but he was looking to renew them by being there. When we think about Holy Week and our Good Friday and Easter, that started with Jesus honoring and recognition and celebration of the Passover. You see, from the very beginning, God created this rhythm and calendar for the people to remember, to celebrate, and remind themselves of who he is and what he had done for them and what he wanted them to do as his people. That's not a New Testament thing only. That's been from the beginning. We've figured out that that's our rhythm. Stephen Colbert, the late night talk show host, I think is pretty funny. Um, and he has one guest in particular who I also think is very funny named Ricky Gervais. Uh, and they get together and they have conversations that are both hilarious and scary profound. Right? So... Ricky Gervais is a comedian who is an atheist, who's really vocal and, if I can be honest, kind of funny about what he believes and what people who follow Jesus would believe. He's kind of condescending, but it makes me laugh, and I feel terrible that he's wrong, and I hope one day he comes to understand how things actually are. Stephen Colbert is a very devout Catholic. He's a man of faith, and they have great, hilarious conversations, okay? Um, and this past week, Ricky Gervais was on Stephen Colbert, and I was watching it, exploring this kind of question in my mind, why is it that we get together? And Stephen Colbert said something about his own faith that I found fascinating. He said, I have an anemic faith. My faith comes and goes. I have a firefly of a faith. It flickers on, and it flickers off, and some days when it's on, I just want to catch it in a bottle and, and twist the cap on, and well, then it ends up dying. 
This was an off-the-cuff remark that he made that I think is incredibly profound about the human experience, about what it means to follow Jesus. We don't have this constant sense, this constant reality of always wanting to be close to Jesus, of always wanting to follow. We don't have that. It's not a thing. We flicker on and off. But God in his grace has given us this rhythm of reminding ourselves and rooting ourselves in the story of who he is, what he's done for us, and who we are as his people, and what that's supposed to push us into throughout the week. We get together to remind ourselves and to remember who he is and who we are as his people. Now, if that's the why we're supposed to gather, supposed to get together, why doesn't the New Testament tell us more specifically about what it is that we're supposed to do when we get together? There's no place in the New Testament that says, here's exactly what you do when you come together, otherwise you're not following Jesus. It doesn't say you've got eight minutes of a call to worship and then you're going to do announcements and only four. Right? It, there's, we've put our own kind of rules and parameters around that. Okay? But the New Testament doesn't tell us. But if this is such an important thing for us to do, why doesn't, why doesn't the New Testament give us a more clear and concise form for it? I think it's this. I think that anytime we get a form or a method for how we're going to experience God, we become way more about the method than we are about the experience of God. So we're given freedom in this to protect ourselves. He gives us that to keep us from our tendency of pursuing idols. When we look, um, when we look at a methodology to connect with God, or to experience or worship God over top of the experience of the presence of God and the re renewing of our minds and the truth that he's going to bring to us, we're idolaters. How many of us lock in so hard to the form of worship, what worship is supposed to be, that if we don't get it, we feel like we're let down? If you walked in on Sunday and there was no electric guitar and no drummer, how would you feel? If you walked in on Sunday and we didn't sing any elevation worship songs, how would you feel? If you walked in on Sunday and all we sang was hymns, how would you feel? I heard a couple. I heard a couple cheers. That's okay. How do you feel when we don't sing any? How would you feel if announcements were longer than you thought they should be? We have all kinds of idols that we're not even aware of. We need to take time to remember that we come together. We can't lock in so hard on the what we do, but remember the why we do it. We can't become so preoccupied with our methods where the methods become what we worship. And while this New Testament is full of descriptions of what worship needs to look like, either from Jesus' words or from the encouragement and correction that comes from other New Testament writers, it doesn't tell us specifically what to do. And there's two options for what that can mean. Either the New Testament church that the people were writing letters to, they weren't doing anything in the rhythm or in their structure, in their liturgy that was wrong. They already had something that was working. Now, some of how they worked it out is pretty clear, especially in 1 Corinthians, of what they were doing wrong. Right? But in terms of their liturgy, what they did when they came together, that was okay. And they actually picked up their practice from the church that came before them, from synagogue and temple worship. Okay? 
The other kind of thought behind why there's nothing is because we have the freedom to use our own cultural ways of bringing praise to the Creator. Our worship, though, whatever it is and however it is that we do it, is intended to reflect the characteristics, the heart, and the attributes of God. Worship of God can't celebrate or embody anything that doesn't reveal who He is. If it doesn't point to the King, or if it doesn't point to the Kingdom, we need to correct it. Here's a couple of aspects that the New Testament describes our worship needs to value and demonstrate that I think are really important and kind of counter to, counterintuitive. The first one is that when we come together as a community to worship, it's supposed to be a community activity. One of the things I often feel coming into a worship service is, what's in it for me? Where, where am I at? This is about me connecting with God. While that's absolutely true, it's pretty narrow. Right? God loves you individually, but he has called you to serve your brothers and sisters, to be a part of a community. And while you may enjoy sitting in that chair and you may be an introvert and you may not know anybody, if we want the kind of worship the New Testament describes, you're part of a body. You are part of a people that is intended to worship and praise God. There are times where you may come into a worship service and the lyrics that we're singing are bigger than you are prepared to pray. And they are bigger than you feel like you can honestly mean. I'm going to encourage you to do one of two things in those moments. Sing anyway. Okay? And allow that faith to stir up within you as you declare it. Or let the people around you sing it for you. But if you don't like the song, you're doing a disservice to the people around you by not joining in. Because you get to speak the words of life. You get to speak the words of praise of God. These declarative things like, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. These are important things that we sing that matter. They matter on a superficial like, level that we interact with all the time, but they also matter on a spiritual level in crazy ways. They declare who he is and they restore kind of the order of creation that he is God and we are not. So the first aspect was community. The second thing I think are important for us to hold on to is this idea in John 4 uh, that Jesus talks about with the Samaritan woman about what true worship is, right? True worshipers will worship in spirit and truth, right? Now, some theologians have come to understand that spirit as being the Holy Spirit. Um, I don't believe that's actually what is being said there, although still very true. True worship is empowered and initiated by the Holy Spirit as we experience the presence of God. Can't help that but by the Holy Spirit. But what it means here in this context, is the spirit within you, the heart, the soul, the mind. It has to be an intellectual thing. It has to be true. It has to be something you comprehend, but there is a heart and soul response to it as well. If all it is is an intellectual exercise, it's not true worship. There's something within us that needs to be drawn out, that needs to be expressed. And as a musician, I realize I keep kind of confusing singing and worship. I'm not sure if you caught that in all my examples. They have to do with singing. Sorry about that. That's kind of intuitive for me. But I mean way more than that. As we come together, in the conversations that we're going to have, 
are we just sort of walking by people sort of doing an obligation, legalistic thing with no heart in it? Are we doing the community thing in a very genuine, authentic, honest way? Are we reflecting the values of God, the character of God, of community and truth in all of our interactions and all of what we do together? So since we have this freedom as a community to kind of determine how we go through telling this story of who God is, what he has done, who we are, and what he's calling us to, as we have freedom to kind of work that out, here's some of what you can expect at Forestbrook as you walk in. And I know this because it's not been so long that um, I can't remember what it was like to walk in here for the first time. It was my candidating Sunday. And uh, um, I still haven't forgiven the search committee for this day. Um, But it started at 7 a.m. with a rehearsal and then led part of the service uh, and the communion transition for, I guess that was from 10 to about 11.30. And then it was meet everybody in the gym for coffee. But I only talked to Brenda Hodgson. I remember that. I remember that conversation. You may not, but I do. It was very helpful. Um, And then coming out of that, we had three or four other conversations and interviews over the course of the afternoon. The downtime we got, and by we, I mean Jolene, my wife, and me, and our six-week-old Trenton, okay, who turns six tomorrow. Um, So it was the three of us. And you know how good your brain is with a six-week-old in the house? So this is, where, this is where we are living through this very full and comprehensive day. And the thing that stands out to me, besides my conversation with Brenda Hodgson, uh, was during the service, as the singing started, I was overwhelmed immediately by how loud this church sang. I was a little bit caught off guard by how many songs we sang, and I was for it. I love it. But the volume of the congregations that washed over me, I said, oh my gosh, this is the kind of place I want to be. This is beautiful. This place loves to sing. It's a biblical imperative, and it's something that we have picked up on uh, and we resonate with. So it's what we do. So when you walk in, we sing a whole lot more. When I meet with worship pastors in the area and they find out how many songs we sing on a Sunday, they say, are you kidding? Like, no, that's what we do. They say, how many songs do you sing in a quarter? I keep a spreadsheet. We do about 70 over three or three and a half months or so. Okay, That's a lot of songs. But it's because this place loves to sing and loves to find new and novel ways to express our hearts to God, to declare the truth of who he is and where we find ourselves in the middle of that story. So we sing and we read. Scripture is the foundation of all of what we do. It's it's that thing that we hold ourselves to, the thing that keeps us in line, that we are trying to understand more and work out by the power of the Holy Spirit. You will find scripture in all of what we do. You will experience prayer. You will experience times where we will come before God, sometimes in silence, sometimes in awe and wonder, sometimes in asking God for things that we know are needed in the lives of this community. We are going to share communion every week when we come together. That's the way that we understand we're supposed to do it, so we do it. We are going to interact and connect. Sorry, introverts. As we, but as we do it, Is it the kind of thing where we're just seeing how many high fives we can get or how many people we can say hi to? Or are we looking out to say, God, who do you need me to speak to? Who who can I bless? Who can I speak life into even in this interaction here? Where do you dread it? These are all opportunities for us to respond to God out of the love that he has shown us. We're going to preach. We're going to look at the word and we're going to try to understand it better and we're going to ask people in our church who are gifted in that way, who have experience, who have study, who 
uh, who have things to say, who have proven the ability that they can listen to God and say what our church needs to hear. We are going to preach. We're also going to bless each other and, and send you out with, with the firefly flickered on as we go. I'm going to invite the worship team back up, but I'm going to pray for us as they come. God, in preparing for today and kind of reflecting back on, on this topic and this thing that I've looked at and studied and talked about a bunch in my life, Father, I, I thank you for the reminders that you have given me in that about how much you desire to meet with us. God, that you haven't just saved us and let us go, but you want this ongoing relationship with us. God, thank you for carving out and modeling and demonstrating this rhythm to us of getting together to proclaim the wonder of who you are and what you want from us. You are so good, and we bless you. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the story that you are telling, that you started in the beginning and continue to work out. Thank you for the part that we get to play in that. God, I ask now that as we continue to sing, as we continue uh, to work through our time together, and as we leave and as we go home, God, that you would open our eyes, that you would help us to see past the familiar everyday things that we've lost the wonder of. God, would you be what ignites our hearts? Would you be what um, brightens our mind, brightens our outlook that is our hope? Would you show us the way? Would you show us again who you are and help us to remember what you've done to bring us into, into relationship with you, that we would go and serve you and respond with gratitude and love and worship of you. Thank you, Father. It's in Jesus' name I pray.